Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Something I was thinking about our recent tournament. Did we ever actually explain that the regions... Well, okay, I guess not all of them. There's only four regions. But a couple of them are specifically movie references. Like, did we ever actually talk about that? I, mean, I don't we, think so. We just kind of said the na- names of the brackets. Yeah, we just said the names. I, I mean, I would assume... Well, okay. <laughs> the one is obvious. I guess maybe I shouldn't. Right, no. If, you, if you're familiar with Pulp Fiction. But I mean, Pulp Fiction is a you know, 27-year-old movie at this point. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I was going to say, well, I assume that anyone who's listening to history and film has probably seen Pulp Fiction, but then it's like, oh, well, actually, that uh, maybe might not be the case. Right, yeah. So I was just thinking, yeah, so the, the, the four regions of our uh, bracket that we finished up a month ago or whenever were, well, I'm going to go out of order here. So Medieval on Your Ass is a direct Pulp Fiction reference. And so if you haven't right. seen Pulp Fiction... Go watch that. V- viewer discretion advised, though, for the scene. Well, fair. Yeah, fair. I don't, I don't know what our crossover audience is with uh, Tarantino and history and film there. And then Modern Times is just straight up the name of a Charlie Chaplin movie. So it sounds like the most boring right. region, but it's because I'm just going with the name of a Charlie Chaplin movie. Yeah. The other two, not so much. Although even Ancient Ones, in my mind, was kind of like what some scary movie or fantasy movie would refer to some old you know cult or ancestors or something like that so it sounds cinematic it sounds like a like an hp lovecraft like some sort of eldritch terrors the ancient ones like right you know, cthulhu or something <laughs> right so that, that was intentional when i was doing that one and then uh and then the other one i guess not so much you know just enlightened industrialist was just trying to combine a couple of things but uh the other ones were kind of specifically with uh movies in mind anyway and and making that region the name of that region very hard to say Without messing up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little more of the uh, tongue twistery one. Right. I was, I was going to ask real quick, too. Explain that film class you're taking right now, again, real quick, and just what you're doing for that. Or so it's actually, it's actually two. So I'm taking two at once. And they're both, they're both summer classes. So the way, the way that they work is it's the summer semester. A lot of the classes are split up into what they call A and B sessions. So like each session is only like half as long as a normal semester would be but you're getting the same amount of credit hours which means you're doing the same amount of work right like these same classes exist in a fall or a spring semester right so basically you're just doing all of the work in half the time so it's just twice as that's why you're getting you know it's three credit hours for a six-week class so it's just a bunch of stuff condensed all together so i'm taking two of those at once so it's basically like of being a full-time student but only having two classes okay yeah, yeah you basically have you have a, your module that might be a week long normally you have one do wednesday and one do sunday every week gotcha so i'm taking two right now one is it's actually an english class that's called intro to film studies And then another one is an actual, like the name of the class is FMS 380. So it's, it's actually a film studies class. And that one is, I forget the exact name, but it's race and gender representation in film. Okay. And kind of the, the history of that. It's pretty interesting. 
one of the interesting things to me is seeing like where those things cross over. So like, for instance, some of the movies that were assigned from the the intro to film class, it's like, oh, that would actually maybe work really well in this other class. So like this week in my and you have to so I have to watch movies for homework. So right now I'm watching like, you know, anywhere from six to ten movies every week just for home basically any movie watching I'm doing right now is homework. One hundred percent homework. Yeah, it's academic. So this week for my intro to film class, the two movies that were assigned were uh, Bamboozled, the Spike Lee movie, okay, and Brokeback Mountain, which I'm like, oh, those are both like, oh, right, those are both, and, and they're and they're not assigned. You know, we we haven't covered those; those aren't being covered in my my race and gender in film class. Huh. But obviously, those are very; those are both very race and gender themed heavy movies. I'm I'm just picturing you spending all your time on the couch this summer, and then your wife yells at you, and you're like, "I'm studying. I'm doing homework." Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just because I like it doesn't mean it's not homework. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons, <laughs> and I'm Logan Denning. And this week we are discussing season three of The Crown the Netflix series about the royal family that I just absolutely love and I think Logan is a fan of as well. Yeah, and we're finally f- finally getting to a season where Olivia Coleman is the queen. Uh, <laughs> two weeks, well, I guess four, two episodes after, four weeks after gushing over her and talking oh. about how much we love <laughs> Olivia Coleman in the, in the very first episode because we just couldn't contain ourselves. <laughs> this is the uh, Olivia Coleman Appreciation Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so if if you've been following along, this is just kind of a, again, I hate to call it a gap filler, but we are kind of between missions right now before we start our American History Project. And so we're not doing a super deep dive episode by episode breakdown or anything. We're just kind of using this as an opportunity to talk about some of the things that they talk about in The Crown because we do uh, really appreciate that program. What I noticed too, the difference between, I think, this season, doing a little bit of the research and the first couple of seasons is. I feel like the first two seasons focused less on maybe specific incidents and more on establishing the characters in general. Obviously, there was both. But when you get into this episode or this season, I think you are getting to more like bullet pointed specific incidents. So I feel like there was maybe almost more to talk about this week. History wise. Yeah. Yeah. As far as yeah. specific incidents. Right. And I, I didn't really think about this, but we were talking about last time talked about how my wife didn't like how they switched up the characters right yeah, yeah. The, the actors yeah and i wonder if too if maybe something that contributes to that is when you get to season three how it's more of a just bullet po- you know i mean they're, they're still exploring the characters right but it's a lot more of like a historical show from week right. to week than it is a character exploration so i wonder if maybe that contributes to yeah oh, right right well. it's more than just a casting change there actually is a little bit of a subtle shift you could argue uh entering season three here yeah so i did kind of do my notes and again, i don't want to we don't necessarily talk about episodes specifically other than i do i do want to talk about kind of i made more notes i felt like than i did last week so this season covers 1964 to 1977 which does then basically start off where the other one left off so you are switching actors actresses though so the first thing that kind of comes up is, and again, it's the whole debate on the crown. The whole reason we want to do this is there's is the debate between how much is this an accurate representation of what actually happened within the royal family and how much of it is just a TV show. And I had heard at one point, you know, British people kind of making fun of Americans for considering it historic. But I, I think just kind of 
not being naive and knowing you're watching a TV show, you shouldn't necessarily believe it all. But a lot of it is accurate. So like right off the bat here, so when the new uh, prime minister, Harold Wilson, comes in office, there are rumors, and we see this in the show, that he was like working for the KGB. And, he, mm-hmm. and he's ultimately kind of exonerated. But they didn't make that up. There were rumors that he was a Soviet spy. And there were two factions, basically one who believed uh, those rumors and one that didn't. So, like There was a substantial group of people who were legitimately concerned that the prime minister was working for the Soviets. So that's not something that was not invented for the show just to kind of beef up drama or anything. Then it gets into the kind of, I mean, spoiler alerts to the whole season here, because again, this season does kind of start to get to where spoilers maybe could be a thing. So they discover that this uh, art advisor for the Queens, for, for the royal family, was the Soviet spy, like the mole working in Buckingham Palace or whatever. Right. That's also accurate. That happened. Oh, really? Yes. So the guy in the, the, guy in the show was uh, one Anthony Blunt. So he was actually mm-hmm. part of what was called the Cambridge Five. And this was a group of Brits who were Soviet spies from like the 1930s into the early 1950s. And it basically, so it wasn't necessarily an evil thing. So with, with Blunt specifically, he was kind of an interesting figure in that he was an idealist. So he definitely had communist sympathies, but he was seeing it as a way to protect Europe from fascism. And that communism was going to be the best bulwark oh, against right. The spirit of fascism. So he was kind of an idealist. Uh, that's like exactly what that kind of ideology or that sentiment is exactly what uh, Patton in the movie, Patton is afraid of. Oh, when he's okay. talking about, oh, well, after we get done fighting the jerk, like we're going to have to fight the Russians next. Right, right. He, and he, you know, there's that scene where he's at the phone call and he's talking about how, oh, well, after we take Berlin, you should, you should just let me keep, you know, keep going east. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that. That was definitely uh, something that a lot of you know, like the capitalist West was worried about after after World War II during the Cold War. Right, and, we, and we've we've talked about that probably before a little bit. In the United States with you know, good night and good luck, and the the Red Scare there, and you know, to what extent were there elements that were going to try to overthrow? Right to the point where there was, like, Western support for straight-up fascist dictators in places like Central and South America because, well, as long as it's not communism. Oh, right, right. You know what I mean? We were okay with backing those dictators, right, yeah. It even swung the, the opposite way, too, where there were people who were like, well, you know, as a combat to communism, like, we're not really, you know, we don't really like fascism, but at least it's not communism. Yeah, of course, then again, not to go completely off the rails here, but, I mean, to what extent <laughs> are, are, are we seeing that today with... You know, in the United States, everyone's like, "Oh, that's you want to be like Scandinavia? That's socialism." And then the, the main side, the main, uh, in the meantime, the people saying that are also kind of okay with a little bit of fascism. Yeah, but yeah, we don't need to go down that uh, that rabbit <laughs> hole right now. But no, so uh, when uh, Anthony Blunt was kind of discovered and outed, they they actually it was kind of weird. So none of the Cambridge Five were ever prosecuted. They kept everything under wraps. And, and the public didn't even know. So in the, in the movie, or sorry, in the show here, this is all happening in 1964. The public didn't know he was a Soviet spy until 1979. That's crazy. I, I feel like if that same thing happened in the United States, oh, it'd, right. be like, it'd be all over the news. He'd be made yeah. an example of. He'd be prosecuted, put in prison for like a super long time. I feel like right. It's kind of a. I don't. If, I don't know if that if the difference is maybe like a cultural thing or if it's I just a probably just a so. different kind yeah. of strategy for how they wanted to you know how they wanted to kind of 
combat communist ideology and sympathy in the UK versus in the US. Right. It, it does kind of point to just a different mentality when it comes to stuff like that. Just like we were talking about in um is it's a not a super similar example, but it kind of points to that I don't know if it's maybe a cultural shift, but when we were talking about oh my gosh. The Alan Turing movie, Imitation Game. Oh, right. Uh, where we were talking about the difference between the U.S. installations versus the British installations, where the U.S. would have like these great big installations with huge fences and walls and tons of guards. And like, it's, you know, it's a really big, hard to get into place, but it's also very ostentatious. Like, everyone right. knows, oh, that's the place where all the secrets are. Right. Whereas the Brits, it was like, oh no, it's just this farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. With no security, but like it doesn't look like anything other than just a farm. Like you wouldn't know, right? It was a farmhouse unless you are, you know, unless you are inside and you know what's going on there. So I, I don't know. I wonder if that is yeah, that's a good point. Connected at all, but and, and, I, and I think MI five or whichever group that is had vetted him enough to know that hey, he had been active for a decade and he they didn't consider him a threat. And then yeah, is, is the is the mess you raised by openly publicly prosecuting him actually a bigger net negative for the country than just kind of quietly making sure you're keeping tabs on him and yeah what's funny the other funny thing is uh he was sending so much stuff to russia that they were suspicious of him that he might have been a triple agent. Like he was so oh. forth, he was so forthcoming. They were like, "You're you're being way too helpful." Yes, yes. <laughs> the KGB actually like found him like kind of annoying. <laughs> oh my gosh! But again, I think because he, he was just an idealist, and there was even like quotes of like KGB people basically being like, "Ugh, yeah, that guy." <laughs> That's funny. Okay, completely jumping. Uh, we also then get to see Princess Margaret, now played by Helena Bonham Carter. And specifically, they kind of focus on... Wonderful performance. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, yes, yes. Uh, but how well she hits it off with LBJ. And right. I loved how they highlighted the dynamic of them both kind of being second fiddle to a more popular figure with yes. Margaret versus her sister, the Queen, and LBJ coming after the more popular... Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, LBJ coming after yep. the more popular JFK. Right. And that dynamic... and. I love that because I I loved learning that those two were like hit it off so well and were like good buddies because I love Lyndon B. Johnson. Like, oh, really? I love I love the stories about like he's so interesting. He's such a like a fascinating character. He's like he's a uh, very much like what I think of as like the closest that we've had. Well. I don't know if the closest that we have, but he's a very everyman president. You know, he was not uh, kind of a George W. Bush type, right? Yeah, but like, but like more, more politically savvy, though. charismatic and more charismatic. OK, yeah, yeah and more politically savvy and intimidating and knew how to like oh, intimidate true. people and would like, you know, like there's stories about like just to flex on people. He would like have people come in and like take a meeting with him while he's like in the bathroom. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And I don't know. There's just there's a lot of uh, funny like quotes and uh, recordings and stuff you can look up from Lyndon B. Johnson. But he's one of the more fascinating presidents we've had. Um, but I like to see that in this in this show, it was uh, that he got along with Princess Margaret. And, th and that does seem to be accurate. So we don't have the full details or everything, but it does seem that they they hit it off. It was while Margaret and Tony were touring the United States, and and uh, again, it wasn't just them, but like you know, the whole British crew with her, and then the whole White House crew with LBJ. Yeah, they're like dancing at the White House until almost two a.m. Yeah. and just yeah, you don't do that if you're not getting along. 
it was kind of and the I main like thing. that they I like that they got Clancy Brown to play Lyndon Johnson. I thought that oh. was a very good fit. <laughs> is he the dude from Shawshank Redemption? He is. Yeah, yeah he's the, he's the yeah. prison guard from Shawshank yeah. Redemption. He's been in some other stuff. He's he's in Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the uh, maybe most mentioned movie on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's Surly Joe the Gambler in in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Which uh, wait, which part is is that the first part? The first part, the okay. dude remember that pulls a pistol on him, yeah, and he kicks the table and it go, hits his pistol into his head. The guy that gets shot in the face, that's Surly Joe. Oh, I I I probably recognized it at the time, but I forgot. Yeah, and then oh, the honestly the heaviest episode of the entire series is the 1966 Aubrey disaster where the. The coal slurry stuff basically slides into a school. Yeah. It was interesting researching. I watched a YouTube video specifically about the actual event compared to the Netflix episode. And, mm-hmm. well, se- several things. One, honestly, I was like tearing up watching this YouTube video just because it was, I feel like even more than the show, it just kind of highlighted the tragedy. Because in a show, you're not watching a show. When you're all of a sudden watching almost like a documentary version about it, it just hits that much harder, I felt like. Uh, so this was a British YouTube channel. In the, the what I wrote down, they said, "quote As with everything in the Crown, the episode was meticulously researched." Unquote. So I I thought that that made me feel you know, kind of the whole reason we're doing these episodes is to kind of you know get that uh, perspective. Now they also right. do talk about creative license being taken to height, heighten the drama and all that kind of stuff. But the few yeah. things the, the few things that I thought were really interesting about this is the town of Aberfan or whatever, and I, I'm probably saying it wrong was actually heavily involved with the production of this episode and that the creators of the show wanted really? to be extremely respectful and basically have their blessing to share this yeah. story. Well, I mean, you you have to be. No, yeah. right, right. So, like, the group that's singing... I mean, yeah, anyway, this is tough. The, the group that's singing at the end, like, by the gra- the graveside, that's an actual singing group of citizens of Aberfan or whatever. Oh, like, th- wow. Those aren't actors. That's crazy. Uh, just a lot of people uh, involved that remember it. Or uh, I'm getting chills right now. It, it, was, it was really impressive to kind of see uh, what all went into this. And the other big, big thing of note that is not covered in the show... So, the show got it pretty darn right, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the follow-up is in the in the years and decades that followed, the British government kind of began to see the citizens of Aberfan as like a nuisance because of the they actually wanted accountability and justification and recompense of some kind, and they were oh, wow. and the government just started they basically got screwed over for decades, yeah, decades of all these all just the 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 National Coal Board that they they do kind of show them taking some heat in the movie. It seems like, and again, this was obviously just, I'm kind of basing it off of one video that I guess may or may not have been biased, but obviously it's pretty easy to be, believe that the government didn't do right by this community. And just, you know, the fact that they had known this was going to be an issue or this was a risk and they refused to do anything about it. And then even after the fact, it was like pulling teeth to get them to help pony up for anything financially. And that when the people were still, you know, you have people dealing with PTSD and survivor's guilt and all these things, and the government just wanted to be done with it and have nothing to do with it. And then it, it took years for them to get money that was promised to them. And even then it was like they get this certain amount of money three decades later when it's not worth as much as it would have been if they had gotten it. At the, and, right. and, and it's just anyway, just kind of a whole heartbreaking uh, event with, again, it was just basically a coal mine up top collapsed and this it had rained a lot. And so basically this like liquid sludge comes in at like 40 miles an hour and just wipes out a, a elementary school. I don't remember the next exact numbers, but of the roughly 150 people who died that day, over 100 of them were children right. who had just gotten to school. 
Yeah, just what, absolutely uh, horrible. What, I don't remember. Do they say in the episode what's the reason that that Queen Elizabeth doesn't go there? Because she she doesn't visit the the place that she doesn't visit the town. It, yeah, it takes her a while. So then, and that is actually accurate too. So in the show and with Anne in real life, it took her about eight days before she actually visited the site. Yeah, was there was there like a reason for that that was ever given? Uh, the reason in the show is kind of just, and and I don't know, I don't know to what extent this side of it is super accurate, but it does seem to make sense and in fitting with everything. Basically, not to sound callous, but lots of things happen everywhere, and I can't go to all the things. Well, right. Okay. So where do you draw the line? I'll just draw the line at not going to any of them. I feel like 150 people dying and 100 of them being kids is pretty far past that line. But again, I'm also not the queen. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And it is why she ultimately went. And again, and I don't know. And I don't know if that is the real life reason for the hesitation. But in real life, in I think it was 2002, you know, Mm -hmm. so what, you know, 40 ish years after that happened, she said that still the biggest regret of her entire reign was the delay before going to Aberfan. Oh, wow. Okay. So it it weighs on her. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I, I see what you're... You're 100% right. But again, there, there's always going to be that line. It's okay. So what if it's a, a bus with 30 kids crashes? I, it's, there's a million different things. Yeah. And she can't be going around just... Con- I mean, now at the same time, yeah, she kind of could. Uh, <laughs> right <laughs> right and, and and then the and the episode makes a big point of focusing on her emotionality or lack thereof yeah and i didn't really read anything about that uh as far as the accuracy i mean she is kind of a well-known very staid person i mean she was trained from the time no, she was right. a little kid to be stoic and right. have bearing and to you know as much as people would criticize her, you know, for not crying or looking cold or whatever, at the same time, she can't be a blubbering mess. You, when you're the leader of a country, you can't just be sobbing. Yeah. I mean, it. Right. that might be what you want to do. And in this situation, it's probably fitting. Right. But right. as the leader, you can't you can't do that. Yeah. And she does in in private. She's I right. Mean, we see that. But. Yeah, you can't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> no, right. Um, but you know, I, yeah, I, I just they handled that episode very well, very well, very tastefully, very powerful episode. Probably one of the most memorable episodes of the whole series, I would say. Right. And uh, later, and again, I am, I am kind of going episode by episode, and I won't kind of stick to that. We're not just going to do you know ten topics on ten episodes here, but that's kind of how it's working. This again, I feel like this season was kind of more suited to that. We meet Prince Philip's mother. And I thought they yeah. kind of handled it in a very interesting way where we first kind of were in this monastery in Greece and you're like, what is going on? Who is this lady? And then you learn like at the end of the scene, oh, it's Prince Philip's mother. And you're like, wait, what? And so as, as an American who knew nothing about any of this, I thought that was actually a really interesting way to introduce Princess Alice mm-hmm. and kind of get into that. So I didn't, I, the episode itself, we didn't necessarily need to go into. Basically, though, uh, it's the whole Greece thing. We mentioned that Prince Philip's family you know, being part of the Greek royal family, then gets exiled at one point. So his mother was back in Greece. And then there's another, there's enough political unrest in the 60s here then. It was uh, 1967. They were a little bit worried that maybe she wasn't completely safe again. And so yeah. they wanted to get her out of there. And that did happen in real life. They they brought her to Buckingham Palace, wherever, where she did actually, uh, live out the rest of her life, which is just another couple of years after this. But this did happen. She was born in Windsor Castle, which I think is interesting. 
So she's actually also a great granddaughter of Queen Victoria herself. So I think we maybe mentioned it, but I wrote here, yes, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth were third cousins. But uh, so I, out of curiosity, though, then I, I pulled up 23andMe <laughs> just to look at the <laughs> just to look at the percentages. So I looked at basically my own third cousins that show up on 23andMe and mm-hmm. the percent you share. So like when you look at your parents, it says like 50-50 with my brother on 50-50 with my first cousins on 25%, that kind of thing. My third cousins, it averaged about 1.5%. So oh, it, it's really okay. not much. It's more than someone you're not related to. But again, it's, you know, I, I, I'm not always defending the, the, the royal family and their, you know, quote, inbreeding that people kind of tease about. But one I've mentioned, we're all the product of first cousins at some point. So the fact that these are third cousins sharing about 1.5% of their DNA is arguably irrelevant in the grand scheme of things and again see our past episodes where i talk about how we're all actually related and inbred so get over yourselves (laughs) yeah the uh this episode also has a kind of a historical crossover a very a very small historical thread to a movie that we've done before in charlie wilson's war when gust uh avocados philip seymour hoffman's character is arguing with his boss about how, you know, oh, I'm supposed to go to Helsinki and he's getting pulled off because he's, you know, very brash and not likable. (laughs) But he, in that, he talks about all the work that he's been doing. And one of the things that he mentions is the Greek junta. And he mentions Papandreou and that coup, that overthrow of the government, which happened in 1967, which is, I, I think this, it's this exact incident. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Which the CIA was involved in because, again, like we said, they were they were basically down with whatever as long as it was going against communism. Interesting. So, yeah, I just I just thought that that was kind of an interesting little tie-in to another episode. So go listen to our episode on uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Not to learn more about, like, any of this stuff. Like, we, I don't even think we mentioned it in that episode, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right, right. I mean, yeah, we kind of... Yeah, he was Greek, of course, but we... Yeah. Uh, right. Or of Greek descent. So this episode, or this season, gets a little more into... Here's where I'm kind of breaking away from the exact episodes here. But we see a little more of Prince Charles, because now he's kind of, you know, from high school and into college uh, as we go through this season. And again, it doesn't shift focus. I feel like the show does a good job of never losing the initial focus on Elizabeth and Philip, but then also bringing in Charles and Margaret and giving them their fair shake as well. So it's... Yeah. I mean, it's like Queen Elizabeth's the main character, but also not... There is not right. really a main character. The main character is <laughs> the crown. The crown. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and, and everything around uh, the royal family there. So, again, another thing I thought was surprisingly accurate, maybe, is when they have Charles go down to Wales to go basically spend, they call it a term. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you're saying, it's, it's a short semester, kind of like a, I think he was down there for 10 weeks uh, studying yeah. at a university in Wales to learn welsh history and learn the welsh welsh language as the prince mm-hmm. of wales right and the idea that he was teamed up with a tutor who was a welsh nationalist i.e someone who kind of wanted wales to become independent of great britain right. yeah who didn't who didn't like him right didn't right. want to teach him anything yeah right didn't respect him and i didn't realize to what extent again it's it's really easy for americans to not understand this dynamic because it's just not on our radar but we've mentioned it many, many times in the podcast, but the Welsh and the Welsh language is all of like Celtic descent and the Anglo- Anglo-Saxons, the Angles, the land of the Angles, England, the English, 
basically came over, conquered the island, and booted them into these pockets of Wales and Scotland. And that's why there's those kind of distinct differences. So even to today, there's a little bit of that animosity that the Welsh are kind of a different people from the English, but the English, they are subservient, not subservient is not the right word, but they are, I mean, they're part of the British country. If we we probably mentioned before, it's kind of like the Native Americans over in the United States. Very similar. Other than their population has survived. And the fact that both communities are white, you don't notice it as much, but it's the same kind of thing. Right. Same thing with, um, I think of it a lot, very similar to Hawaii where you mm, have yeah. native Hawaiians and there are quite a few who don't like the fact that Hawaii is part of the United States. As a matter of fact, if you go to Hawaii and you see people flying the Hawaiian flag upside down, that's exactly what they're trying to say. It's a protest, it's a protest we, thing. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And like you said, we you know, we don't really maybe notice it or think of it that much in as you know, with Wales because they all they're all white, you know, they all you can't just like look as a, oh you're welsh and you are english but yeah it's it's a very a very similar type of situation um i also want to just take a moment i know we gushed over olivia coleman but josh o'connor is amazing as prince charles oh he is really good He's yeah so yeah. good he <laughs> he looks just like him so whoever whoever cast him good good on them <laughs> uh but he also like his mannerisms and his vocal quality he sounds just like him too like when you look at old recordings of Prince Charles when he is that age, like it's uncanny. It's right. It's, he's so good. He's so good. And uh, yeah, this I was gonna say this is like the first. Th- I mean, he's been in other stuff, but this is the first thing that I've seen him in. Um, I hope he gets a lot more work because yeah. he's great. Yeah, kind of that. Uh, oh, not he didn't mumble exactly, but he just talk. He does. He kind of does soften his pronunciations of words yeah. without quite mm-hmm. mumbling, and also kind of talking kind of low but also yeah. really kind of sharp-witted at the same time. Yeah, he yeah. kind of nails that, yeah. So the whole title, Prince of Wales, is actually even, just that title itself being given to an Englishman is extremely offensive and has been intentionally, inf- well, it started as intentionally offensive. The, the idea of calling right. the heir to the throne the Prince of Wales goes back right. to Longshanks, the magnificent bastard who had just kind of subjugated the Welsh and then immediately calls his son, oh, hey, don't worry. It's part, it's part of like, I'll, I'll give you guys an olive, olive branch. Now that I've just conquered you, Wales, I'm going to give you an olive branch. I will elevate a Welsh prince. And then he basically holds up his infant son, the future Edward II, who was technically born in Wales. And it was like, yeah. this is the prince of Wales, the heir to the yep. English throne. And it's like, yep. well, no, he's not one of us. He's your son. And he's like, ha ha, yeah. prince of Wales. Oh, right. And, uh, and the black prince, what is he the prince of? He's the prince of Wales. Oh, right, because he's the heir to the throne, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, so and supposedly there's different sources on this, and this may be apocryphal, but supposedly Edward I basically even said, like, yes, I will, you know, elevate a prince, quote, born on Welsh soil and speaking no other language, with the joke being, he's a baby, he doesn't speak any language. Right, yeah, very clever. Right, so this, <laughs> so when you get into, and I forget what year this is set in, you know, late 60s, early 70s, probably still late 60s here with Charles being in college. It is, yeah, yeah. it is. So the idea that this is the Prince of Wales, who's English, coming to Wales, even 600 years after Longshank, 700 years, it needles them. It just gets under their skin, and there are protests, and they just don't like it. It's just, it's insulting. You're insulting our heritage 
by calling yeah. your damn English heir the Prince of Wales. Please stop doing that kind of thing. Right. But again, in the show, and I think in real life, he, he did kind of, again, just the fact that he's called the Prince of Wales, he's kind of never going to get everybody on board. But they make a point in the show, and this does seem to be kind of the tenor of how he did approach it, is like, no, he did make an earnest effort to learn the language and their history and honor them as a people. Well, and he he even, in the speech that he gives, like towards yeah, the end of yeah. the episode, he's like really sympathetic to the nationalistic Welsh cause, basically. Yeah, the, the like the crown is not happy about it. No, I, no, I didn't look into that to see to what extent that was accurate. I think I think the spirit of it was true, even if. Uh-huh. The, the, but I did not. I did not like look for a transcript of the speech or anything to see if that was genuine. But again, with the way everything else in the show seems to be, it feels right. It feels right. I don't. I don't know to what extent yeah. that was uh, exaggerated, but it, I, I think the spirit of it feels right. And again, so the specifically because so the real life connection I do have is that tutor. They did kind of remain friends, and so actually, uh, his tutor was uh, Teddy Millward, who just died in April of 2020. So, like after this episode aired, and Charles did, you know, kind of openly commiserate with the family, and and you know, talked about how they had remained in touch and did still continue to have a relationship. So, yeah, I, I do think there was an an earnest connection there, even if the title itself is offensive. He's done his best with it. I I would say, yeah, as as well as any any Englishman carrying that title could. Again, it, it, the American, I think you, it would be like if, uh, again, we don't have a monarchy here, but it would be like if we gave, oh, we call we call the vice president the, the chief of the Navajo. I'm like, no, yeah. dude, don't do that. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's almost the equivalent. Right. Uh, and an interesting thing that they show in that uh, episode two that, I mean, I understand why there's not more of it I because it's it's not really relevant, but it was kind of cool and interesting to see was... Joshua Connor playing Prince Charles playing Richard II. Oh, that was kind of cool because he, you know, they, he, there's that short little scene at the end where he's at, you know, when he comes back to England and he's in that in the performance of Richard II. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime an actor is, yeah, got the kind of the levels of that, it's 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 pretty impressive. Yeah. So uh, we have the moon landing, and here here is one where it did seem to be embellished so that meaning sorry the moon landing happened what they seem to embellish is uh prince philip's obsession with it there is basically no evidence there was no evidence that he was so particularly obsessed or used this as part of his like oh if i fail to accomplish anything when i see what these young strapping guys are doing and i feel like i could have a similar path right there's no evidence that any of that is accurate so the astronauts did come visit buckingham palace they did meet with the family. He did talk to them. But the way the show kind of puts the spin on it, I, I couldn't find anything to back up that that's, that's true. Oh, okay. I thought that was interesting, though, when he gets those guys to come in and they're all like... Boring. <laughs> yeah. They're all just like, yes, we did our job. And like, that's basically it. <laughs> right, right. But this, again, we've we've talked about this with other other stuff. Like, that's the exact kind of person, though, that you need to be on a moon mission yes you can't have dudes with like really strong personalities who are going to be very emotional and you know like right you need very calm cool collected almost robotic you know just mind on the mission that's exactly the type of dude that you need right you definitely see that and we'll we'll actually probably get to first man in here first man in a few years when we cover america as we're covering american history 
But yeah, we saw that from Neil Armstrong there, where he's kind of just kind of almost robotic. And yeah. ironically, his wife is played by in First Man, Claire Foy, who played right. Queen Elizabeth in yeah. seasons one and two of The Crown. One thing that this episode did remind me of, and I don't want this to sound like I'm throwing shade at the UK at all, but it reminds me of an Eddie Izzard stand up from like, I don't know, 1999 or 2000, where he talks about the the British space program and he like makes a joke about how the British space program is just a guy in a tracksuit going up a tall ladder. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even remember the context of why he's talking. I think it's like talking about, Oh, and you know, in in America, like they tell you, you can be whatever you want to be. They, you know, you can be an astronaut. You can go to space. He said in, in Britain, we don't have that. You know, there our space program is just a guy in a tracksuit going up a tall ladder or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. He's a, he's a funny fellow as well. I feel like we've, I feel like Eddie Izzard has come up on the podcast before, but I can't remember in what context. Probably, probably. <laughs> so then we get into the, some more relationship stuff. And so we, we don't get into Diana yet in this season. That'll be next time. But we do get into Camilla Parker Bowles. Yeah. So the main thing I want to kind of focus on here. So again, there's, it's kind of complicated because you do have, and a lot of this, again, seems to be accurate. So in the show, they have. Anne actually dates Andrew Parker Bowles before he marries Camilla, which is kind of weird because then obviously Charles famously had a relationship with Camilla. But yeah, that all is accurate. You kind of have this love square with two of them being siblings on opposite ends. I mean, that's accurate to a point. Again, I don't know about the details within the show, but the broad strokes were correct. Anne did date Andrew Parker Bowles. Um, And then specifically, I wanted to talk about the reason why did the royal family not see Camilla as a proper fit for Charles. Was it because of her? I don't remember exactly, but I the impression that I got, or at least what I remember from when I watched it, was that she just like wasn't she wasn't high enough. Like, sorry, you're just you're not high born. You're just not really good enough. Yeah. So she yeah she came she came from a you know fairly well-to-do family but well, from, i mean from, all these people do but exactly so yeah <laughs> she she was considered too common yeah although what, what i was reading was kind of talking about they almost if it was if it was just that she was too common she was still probably from a good enough family that if charles insisted they might have been able to let it by the larger mm-hmm. issue actually seems to be the fact that she had had lots of boyfriends before charles and that wasn't okay she was too quote experienced yeah, right to be yeah. the potential future queen so it was more of a prudish thing more than an elitist thing and it was both but it's right. almost like the prudish thing was the bigger issue so and it's like they all know that everyone's like having premarital sex or whatever but if it's hard if we can't even like pretend that you know what i'm saying we want at right. least we wanted the illusion the crown is kind of a lot of ways all about the illusions of these things being prim and proper yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's good. yeah. <laughs> Was that the understatement of the podcast? Right. <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, fair. So yeah, so we just definitely see the family family kind of very heavy heavy handedly trying to steer them away from each other. And again, that seems kind of accurate. I mean, since they are married today, it's pretty obvious that he right. was yeah. into her, but. Yeah, just kind of crazy to think that, you know, what what does British history look like over the last few decades if they went ahead and acquiesced and allowed Charles and Camilla to marry back in the 70s and, you know, what kids do they have? And that's just it's just a completely different dynamic. And then Princess dies, never world famous, and then arguably doesn't die, but then she also doesn't have her kids. And just 
one of the many ripples that kind of affects so many things and how we view the world is just crazy how many things turn on a dime. And so something as simple as yes or no to you marrying this one person and what effects that has on kind of the rest of history of, the, of this family specifically, but when this is the royal family, that kind of has not national implications, but national interest. Uh, so we, we do see Charles' relationships with Lord Mountbatten, but I was kind of going to kind of save him till next time, talk more about Lord Bat- Mountbatten in uh Next, next time. Well, the the one thing that the big thing for him in this season was the coup. Oh, was that this season? Yeah, the, oh, okay. the people that were again. I don't remember enough of the specifics about it, but the there was that trying to recruit him of veterans, basically that didn't like the way that the prime minister was running things and tried to get. They wanted to. They wanted to have a coup, and they wanted to. They wanted to replace the current prime minister, uh, Harold Wilson with Lord Mountbatten because, you know, he was a war hero and he's got, you know, the ties of the royal family and everything. And they were trying basically to get the, they, you know, they weren't going to do it like a military. They wanted Elizabeth to basically kind of give her consent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they wanted, because the queen, I think at any time can just dissolve parliament. Can't can't she just boot the, she just boot the prime minister, right? Dissolve parliament and just be like old school queen again. Technically, she has that power. Technically, the the whole pretense is that the par- the prime minister asked the queen or king for their permission to form a government in their name, and it's a ceremonial right. thing technically, but yeah. on paper she can dissolve parliament and right, yeah, which yeah. So they were basically they wanted her, they wanted Mount Lord Mountbatten to try and convince her to do that. Obviously, it didn't actually end up happening, but uh, yeah. That was okay. pretty interesting. I, I missed that that was this season. Okay, I was thinking that was next season. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to mention here is just kind of we do get uh, from Margaret's side of things. Uh, again, we mentioned her in LBJ, but uh, this is kind of the episode or the season where her marriage to Tony does fall apart and she starts having an affair with the younger man. Of course, he's having affairs too. Yeah. But the one thing, and again, I kind of forget in the episode specifically, I know she has an overdose. And the note on Wikipedia here calls it a suicide attempt. I forget within the context of the show if it's seen in that light or not. I'm going to assume it does show it as a, as maybe a suicide attempt. I don't, I don't specifically remember. If anything, it might have been like one of those things where she gets super depressed and overdoses, and it maybe is left ambiguous. Okay, it's okay. She was actually trying to kill herself, or she was just in such a dark place that she just took way more drugs than she was supposed to. I don't remember. Again, in the show, it might have actually been more explicit. Like, oh no, she was trying to kill herself. Okay. I don't remember that being the case, though. So, so the the real life uh, situation was th- there doesn't seem to be any evidence uh, or anyone who thinks seriously that it was a suicide attempt. Uh, okay. What it does seem was just with everything going on with the end of her marriage. She was just extremely stressed out and maybe situa- maybe situationally depressed, but it was more just she couldn't sleep because she was so stressed out, and so she was taking more and more sleeping aids to help mm-hmm. her actually get to sleep because she couldn't get to sleep because she was so stressed out. And then, yes, yeah, there was like one time where they had a real hard time waking her up one morning. Or I, don't, I don't know if she even got hospitalized or anything, but because she had taken, she basically overdosed on sleeping pills, but not in like a suicide attempt way. In a, I just need to get some freaking sleep away. Mm-hmm. So that's about the the extent yeah. of it. And again, we've talked about before about Margaret kind of had a rough life. Th- this stuff, this is why, like, it's so stupid that there was ever like a, oh, we can't let Camilla marry Charles. Like, you got 
like Margaret is running around with all these dudes. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, they see it as a problem, but it's like, how is that any more detrimental or how is that any less detrimental to the royal family than letting Charles marry Camille? Like, who cares? I, I don't know. Right. And same with and same with Edward VIII. I'm, yeah. I'm not British and I'm not part of the royal family, so maybe I just don't <laughs> understand. But it just, this just all seems a little bit a little bit ridiculous and uh and inconsistent and uh, a little hypocritical to me, but whatever. Right, and and same with <laughs> and same with Edward the Eighth. Why not just let him marry Wallace Simpson now? Exactly. It's yeah. probably good, you know, with his uh, with his uh, Nazi sympathies we've mentioned before. Maybe it was right. a good probably call a good thing him. that he wasn't right. Yeah, maybe it was fortuitous that we could use that to get him out. But at the time, they didn't know. Again, right? why not make that the reason? Why not say, "Hey, look, man, you're kind of you're kind of really chill with these Nazis. You're not king anymore, right? Why can't right. that be the reason?" It said, "Oh, well, you you, you can't marry this woman. She was divorced, you know." <laughs> and again, so yeah, obviously, Charles, as still the heir apparent, is now married to Camilla Parker Bowles, and that's okay. And then obviously, right. and any more now, they've definitely moved on with. Uh, and this, we can kind of wrap yeah. up with this is as far as the oh the. Uh, the line of succession thing has been cleared up now too, where uh, the rules just changed within the last decade or so. That if Kate and William had had a daughter first, she would not, she would no longer be trumped by a younger brother. So right. they they changed that rule. Now they had son a son first, so it's arguably irrelevant for another couple of generations. But a elder born daughter does does now uh, supersede any younger brothers to the throne. Anyway, they've gotten way more relaxed and way more modern about those things and. So that's that's uh that's uh, I guess <laughs> progress as much as you can have in a monarchy, which again we can again debate later to what extent that should exist. But <laughs> and again, I I don't know it's kind of funny. I am not someone who like when they talk you know the whole I'm not a People magazine. Oh, what did Kate wear to the wedding? That stuff does not interest me at all. It's more just mm-hmm. the institution itself, <laughs> the crown. So this right. show is right up my alley. But I am not one who you know cares when they have their weddings and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah. I, I look at it more from like the histor- history uh, aspect of it, which is hey, this is the history and film podcast. So <laughs> I guess there's uh, no surprise there. So yes, th- uh, thanks for listening. We'll do uh, another episode here on season four, and uh, and actually because we record so far ahead of time, we will do season five and six as well. But I'm not sure at this at time of recording when those are coming out. So season right. five will hopefully be soon ish uh, from when this airs. But I've kind of lost track of the timeline there or when that's going to come out with COVID and stuff. It is also anyone's guess like after season five comes out, how long it takes us to watch it and then record it well that's true too that's true too (laughs) yep okay so yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you later see ya